I suspect there is a brand of Christianity today that would be unrecognizable to Jesus. I've been told that we live in a Christian nation, yet most days that's highly debatable. There are more than 80% of Americans who endorse the title of Christian. Yet I wonder if Jesus would recognize eight out of every ten individuals living in this nation as belonging to him. If you listen very much to preaching today, it seems that God is preoccupied with you and me being happy, healthy, and wealthy. It seems as if God longs for us to live in the big house and drive the expensive cars, raise healthy, happy children, retire early, live a life of leisure, and avoid suffering at all cost. If that's true, then God the Father owes God the Son a huge apology. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I take that to mean that Jesus is telling us there are times when the animal kingdom will have it better than some of us. For foxes and birds have homes, but no such promise is given to Christ's followers. Not only did Jesus live a meager life as to say that he did not have a permanent house to call home, nor a fancy chariot to drive. But also, Jesus' life was cut short in a tragic death. Jesus was whipped for our waywardness. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was broken because of our brokenness. He was sacrificed because of our sin. The blessed Savior was executed because of blemished sinners. And the blood-soaked body of Jesus was nailed to a rough cross of wood. And the blood of our Savior spilled, splattered, and oozed out of his body into a chilling Palestinian wind on a particular Friday on the third decade of the first century. And Jesus literally died in your place and my place. He died for our sin. He was placed into our grave. He was raised to give us eternal life. When I stop and read the gospel, I think that God is more preoccupied with our holiness than our happiness. He is more interested in securing our righteousness than our riches. And so with that in mind, we come to one of the most pivotal statements in the Sermon on the Mount. Today we continue our sermon study of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever lived. We come to the fourth beatitude in the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. I invite you to take a Bible. Turn there. Once you've found your sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 5. Let's read verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that you will satisfy the deepest longing of our hearts today. Help us to find our fulfillment in you and you alone. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The fourth beatitude is the hinge upon which the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount swivels. There are three beatitudes before it. There are three more beatitudes that flow out of it. It culminates in the eighth and final beatitude. Jesus paints in word pictures. He has vivid imagery for us to see and to believe and to remember. These beatitudes not only mark the condition of the kingdom of God, but it also shows us the characteristics of kingdom people. Jesus said, if you're going to enter into my kingdom, you must come as a spiritual beggar. For blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You and I can't lift a hand or a foot unto our own salvation. Just like the criminal on the cross, we must just plead for God's mercy. Not only that, but when we come to Christ on his terms, we realize that we have godly sorrow over our sin. So Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We have godly grief when we have a perpetual sadness because of our waywardness from the work and will of God. And out of that mourning, we rise up in meekness. For as we discovered last week, we realize that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed is the person who lives a life that is completely surrendered to God's control. Out of all of this, what results is this fourth beatitude. Uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And out of that uh, declaration uh, flow three more beatitudes, which simply stated is that you and I are just overwhelmed with massive mercy. We are preoccupied with purity. We're obsessed with peacemaking. And it all culminates in the realization, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is describing characteristics of kingly guys and kingly gals. Men and women who are gained access and entrance into God's kingdom. He says in this fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus taps in on two of the greatest human impulses known to man, hunger and thirst. You do realize that hunger and thirst is given to you as a mechanism by God so that you and I can stay alive. For if we never knew that we needed to fill our growling empty stomachs, and if we never knew that we needed to hydrate our bodies, we would simply waste away and die. So the fact that you have the capacity and the mechanism of hungering and thirsting, that is a God-given gift. It is basic to our human needs for bread and water are not luxuries of life, they're necessities of life. Now you and I don't really know what it is to hunger and thirst. We think that if we miss two consecutive meals, we're gonna starve to death. We think that if we go a few hours without a tall drink of cold water, that we're simply gonna die. But have you ever met a hungry man? Have you ever really met a thirsty woman? 
Have you ever met someone who is hungry and thirsty? It becomes an all-consuming search. It dominates their actions and their activity. They are singular in their mindset and their focus. They are preoccupied about finding food and drink. Have you ever met a hungry man or a thirsty gal? For when you meet that person, you realize that it is an all-consuming passion. It is a drive in their life that reaches to the depths of their very being. They are hungering and they are thirsting. And Jesus taps in to this all-consuming passion. In a book that's entitled The Sahara Unveiled, the story is told of an Algerian man who wanted to make his way across the largest desert in the world located in northern Africa. As this Algerian man named Laglag was making his way across the Sahara Desert, his truck broke down. You can well imagine this is a problem. Whether or not you've been to the Sahara Desert, you can well visualize that there are no tow trucks in the Sahara Desert. There are no Walmarts, no hotels, no gas stations. And so for three weeks, this man and his companion were stuck, waiting to be rescued. The heat was intense. The days passed like weeks. It didn't take them long to make their way through all of their supplies of food and water. And yet they had hunger and thirst. And it was a powerful motivator because in an effort for them to stay alive, they were willing to drink rusty radiator water. In a quest for survival, they were willing to sip on poison. Jesus comes along and he says, hungering and thirsting are powerful motivators. In fact, some people will try to satisfy that longing in their life and really what they're doing is nothing more than sipping on poison. The question is never, will we hunger and thirst? The question is always, what will we hunger and thirst after? That's the dilemma. It's never a question, do we have a drive? Do we have a passion? Do we have an all-consuming thought? Yes, we always do. We're wired that way. We're made that way. We hunger and we thirst physically and spiritually. So the dilemma is not, will we hunger or thirst? But the dilemma is, what will we hunger and thirst after? And we know people who hunger and thirst after a host of things in this world. Some people are consumed with the drive for success, building a lucrative business. Still other people are are driven by that all-consuming American dream. Whatever it is, we strive to fulfill it. Still other people are consumed with other people. They're consumed with themselves. They're consumed with their spouse. They are driven by their children. They are driven by the happiness of their grandchildren. And some people are even driven and consumed by the satisfaction of their pets. Still other people are driven by their jobs and still others are driven by the prospect of the future. And still we know other individuals that when you look at their life, it seems as if they are driven by travel ball. They're driven by sports. They're they're driven by their favorite college football team. 
They're driven by shopping, driven by sex, consumed with materialism, consumed with money. It's the one thing they think about more than anything else. Oh, my friend, if you are trying to figure out what is your all-consuming passion, what is your hungering and thirsting in your life, all you have to do is follow the TMT trail. You say, Pastor, what is the TMT trail? TMT stands for Thoughts, Money, and Time. You follow that trail, it will reveal what you hunger and thirst after. For what do you think about the most? How do you spend your money? To what or to whom do you give your time? You follow the TMT trail and it always leads to your all-consuming passion. And this morning, let me just let you know a little secret If the end result of your TMT trail is not Jesus, then whatever is facing you standing at the end of that journey is a cheap imitation. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does he mean by that? Well, righteousness is an important word to Jesus. And because it's an important word to Jesus, it ought to be a pretty important word to us. Jesus uses the word righteousness five times in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you've heard a lot of preaching. I've heard a lot of preaching. Preachers repeat themselves for one of two reasons. Either number one, they don't know what else to say and they're just being redundant. Or number two, they're trying to drive home a point. Now, I think Jesus is trying to drive home a point. Why? Because he's the greatest preacher to have ever lived. On five occasions in this one sermon, Jesus speaks about righteousness. He says it in chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 5, verse 10, chapter 5, verse 20, chapter 6, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 33. On five occasions, Jesus talks about this idea of righteousness. What does he mean by it? Well, technically, it's a judicial term. It's used in the court system. It's a word that means to be innocent, to be in right standing, to be free from guilt. The opposite of righteousness is condemnation. So Jesus says we ought to thirst and hunger after righteousness. We ought to thirst and hunger after innocence. We ought to thirst and hunger after being in right standing with God. We ought to thirst and hunger after being free from guilt. We ought to hunger and thirst after righteousness. He says in verse 10 of chapter 5 that when you get this thing called righteousness, it's probably going to end up in the world persecuting you. But that's okay because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then when he gets to verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, listen, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. In the days of antiquity, the Pharisees were regarded as the good guys. They were seen as the moral police. They were the ones who were the most upright. If you interviewed anybody in the first century and said, who are the most likely to get to heaven? The answer would have always been the Pharisees. And Jesus says, your righteousness has got to be better than the good guys. He's pointing us to something greater than the best thing on the planet. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, don't be like the Pharisees who do their acts of righteousness for other people to see. 
You do your acts of righteousness so that your Father in heaven can give you a reward. And then ultimately, chapter 6, verse 33. But you, you want to be in my kingdom, Jesus says. You seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. So what is Jesus driving at? How do we get this innocence? How do we get this uh, freedom from guilt? How do we obtain righteousness? Well, this morning, I want you to know there are two aspects of righteousness that Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. For our purposes, what we'll say is, uh, the first one is what I like to call declared righteousness. The second is demonstrated righteousness. Declared righteousness is what God declares upon you when you come to the point of trusting and believing the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You are declared righteous. But then there's demonstrated righteousness. That's how you and I live in response to Christ living in us. All throughout the Bible, um, righteousness is God's word that's given to those who believe. Abraham believed God. It was credited unto him as righteousness. Righteousness is to say that we are fully, freely, forever forgiven. Now about you, but this is awesome. This is great. Because the moment you trust Jesus as Savior, the moment you believe that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. The moment you believe, God declares you righteous. It's not that you become righteous. You are declared righteous. You are declared innocent. You are declared free from guilt. Declared not from your doing, but declared because of what God says about you in Christ. You are declared innocent in the sight of God, both now and forevermore. You are declared righteous. And the way you receive this declaration is by faith. John Stott, who said that the only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. Grace offers you forgiveness, by faith you accept it. Grace offers you salvation, by faith you accept it. Grace offers you righteousness, by faith you accept it. Grace offers you innocence, by faith you accept it. Theologians call this imputed righteousness. What that means is, is that it has been credited unto us as belonging unto us on our account so that when God looks at you, he sees the innocent perfection of Christ upon your life as if you lived a perfect life. That is imputed righteousness. That is declared righteousness. And it comes to you at the moment of faith. I'm about to get happy here in this house just for a second because I know how sinful I am. I know how despicable I am. Yet when God looks at me, he sees Christ over me. He sees Christ before me. He sees Christ behind me. He sees Christ within me. He looks at me and he says, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. My friends, that is declared righteousness. Yeah. 
so if you are in Christ, you're innocent, never to be made guilty again. Whew. Innocent, never to be declared guilty again. Declared righteousness. When Jesus says you have to hunger and thirst after righteousness, this is what he's talking about. You and I have to get to the point where we crave Christ. All we are are hungry guys and thirsty gals. And what are we hungry for? What are we thirsty for? We want Christ in us. We crave Christ. But there's a second aspect of righteousness. Not only is it declared, but it's also demonstrated. Because of who God is, because of what Christ has done for us, because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, there are certain ways that we live, certain things that we do. Our doing flows from our being. Don't ever get that reversed. There are some people who think that if I do enough good, then I will be innocent in the sight of God. Nope. You're not listening to me. Because your doing flows from your being. Because you are in Christ, this is who you are. This is your being. You've been stamped innocent in the sight of God both now and forevermore. And because of that, it influences your doing. So your doing flows out of your being. It's never reversed. Because you and I can't do enough in order to be innocent in the sight of God. So, we realize that our belief influences our behavior. We realize that our convictions impact our conduct. Our holiness influences our habits. And our righteousness has everything to say about all of our relationships. Simply stated, when you and I hunger and thirst after righteousness, we crave Christ and we starve to please him. We crave Christ and we are starving to please him. This is the impulse of our life. This is the desire because we realize all that God has done for us. I oftentimes call this the sweet swap of salvation. Because I give God my sin, he gives me his salvation. I give him my guilt, he gives me his grace. I give him my perversion, he gives me his perseverance. I give him my frailty, he gives me his faithfulness. I don't know about you, but we got the sweet end of the bargain, don't you think? It's a sweet swap of salvation. Because righteousness has been declared upon us, and in light of that, we demonstrate righteousness in our everyday life. So Jesus says, if you want to get into my kingdom, you are preoccupied, you are consumed, you are overwhelmed with a craving for Christ and you are starving to please him. So this morning I ask you, do you hunger and thirst after Christ? Are you starving to please him. Let me mention just a few diagnostic questions. The first one is this. Um, are you dissatisfied with self? What I really want to say is something much more forceful. What I want to say is, are you disgusted with yourself? 
But I'll ask the first question. Have you gotten to the point where you are dissatisfied with self? The longer I live with me, the more unimpressed I am with me. I understand the words of Paul when he says to the Romans, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, I get fed up with myself, but I make much of Jesus. The best thing about me is Jesus living in me. The best thing about me is that I am in Christ. I am a poor, wretched, despicable, sinful human, but praise be to God, he makes me alive in Christ Jesus. The only good thing anybody can see in me is Christ living in me. So are you dissatisfied with self? Second question, have you reduced the lag time between conviction of sin and eviction of sin? When the Spirit of God resides inside of you and there is a war that rages and when you permit sin to come into your life, it's that Spirit of God that convicts you of that sin. And the question is, have you reduced the lag time between conviction of sin and eviction of sin? Where you get to the point where you say, enough is enough, I've got to evict this out of my life. Once again, it's the Apostle Paul who told the church, take captive every thought and submit it unto Christ. You know that word, take captive, is an aggressive term? It's actually quite abusive. It means to wrestle, apprehend, arrest. When you take captive every thought that comes into your mind, visualize yourself wrestling that thought to the ground. You're, you're in a boxing match with the thoughts and you are wrestling it to the ground. You're cuffing it and you're stuffing it and you're placing it back under the feet of Christ. Take captive every thought. When God's spirit reveals sin in your life, how quickly do you evict it? Or do you allow it to fester? Saying to yourself, it's not that big of a deal. It's not hurting anybody. In fact, nobody else knows but me. Oh, my friends, when you hunger and thirst after Christ, you reduce the lag time of the conviction of sin and the eviction of sin. But third, do you long for the one who longs for you? We are told that God sings over us sweet melodies. God loves us like a parent loves an infant child. And at night when the parent will walk into the cradle and just sing sweet melodies over that baby, so our God longs for us, sings over us. It was St. Augustine who said, my heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. My heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Oh, my friends, if you answer yes to these questions, 
That yes, I'm dissatisfied with self. And yes, I'm doing my best to reduce the lag time between conviction and eviction of sin. And yes, I long for the one who longs for me. Then my friends, if the answers are an affirmative, then you're well on your way to hungering and thirsting after Christ. But if the answer is yes, maybe, sometimes, occasionally, no, not really then Jesus says to you and to me today, I want you to crave Christ and I want you to starve to please me. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. The word filled is the word that means satisfied. It's the imagery of the feeling that a horse must have When a bag of feed is attached to its mouth and that horse eats and eats till the horse can't eat anymore. Completely satisfied. Completely filled. It was John Darby who said, it's not enough to be hungry. The prodigal son was hungry and he ate the pods that the pigs were eating. But when the prodigal son was starving he returned back to his father it's not enough to be hungry you and I have to get to the point where we are starving for the Savior we are craving Christ it was Steve Brown who said that the greatest tool in the church is a person who is passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. It's the greatest tool. The greatest tool in the church is a person who is passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. Is Jesus enough for you today? Oh, my friends, our happiness, our satisfaction is not Christ and. It is Christ alone. Our satisfaction is not Christ and the promotion. Christ and a diversified financial portfolio. Christ and early retirement. Christ and a happy marriage. Christ and healthy children. Christ and cancer-free life. Our satisfaction in life is not Christ and anything. It is Christ and Christ alone. When you and I can say that Jesus is enough, so that the hymn writer is exactly right. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. It's in the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. This morning I'm asking. I'm asking, is Jesus enough for you? It's not Jesus and fill in the blank in order to equal your happiness. It must be Jesus alone. I'm not asking, are you a Christian? I'm not asking, have you walked down an aisle? I'm not asking, have you prayed a certain prayer and spoken certain words? I'm not even asking, have you walked through waters of baptism? I'm asking what Jesus would be asking. Do you crave Christ today? Is he the end result of your TMT trail? Is Jesus enough for you? Do you crave Christ? Are you starving to please Him? Oh, my friends.
may you and I be able to truthfully answer the question with the resounding yes, Christ and Christ alone. Christ and Christ alone. Christ and Christ alone. For I crave Christ and I'm starving to please him. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, help us this day to be honest as you confront us with this fourth powerful beatitude where you are asking us to question that which drives our very being. Do we hunger and do we thirst for you? Oh God, help us. For if there's one listening to my voice who's never accepted you by faith, I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. Help them to come, run to the altar. Oh Father, I pray that for those of us who have fallen into the trap of convenient Christianity. Lord, I pray that today you will jolt us to the reality that nothing can keep us from you. We ought to be so determined that not even a firing squad can keep us from craving Christ. Oh, Father, if there's one who needs to join this faith family, I I pray that in this very moment they will respond in obedience unto you. Heavenly Father, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.